Well, good morning. Uh, Thank you very much for the invitation to be here with you today. It's a real privilege. Uh, I live now in Billings, Montana, after bouncing around the world for a few years. Uh, My wife, in particular, was thrilled when we moved to Billings because she loves winter. And we were looking forward to having our first real winter. Uh, And I thought it was a real winter. It got really cold, dropped down below zero. We had some snow. It's winter enough for me. I'm not really a winter fan. My wife, however, was disappointed because she wanted three feet, four feet of snow. She wanted to see the roads blocked in the kids' home and building fires and those kind of things. We were talking one day about all this with a friend of ours. And he said, winter? You think Billings is winter? Billings is the banana belt. If you want winter, you've got to move to Minnesota. (laughs) So I finally made it. But I have to admit I'm glad I'm here in the summer because I'm a winter wimp. I don't really like cold weather. Although someone told me that your winters here in, uh, in Minnesota aren't what they used to be either, at least over the last few years. So maybe, maybe Cindy, my wife, will have to find someplace else to uh, go to experience winter. Uh, through my work uh, with both with State Department, with Peacemaker Ministries, and before, back in the 1980s, I did a lot of work in mediation, conciliation, had an opportunity to think a great deal about peace, what it is, what it isn't, um, to be involved with people seeking peace. And I wanted to share with you this morning a few ideas, a few things that I've learned over the years about peace. And to do so, I'd like to use the vehicle of Scripture. So if you'd open your Bibles, if you have them and would like to read along to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. I'm just going to read them for us, and you can follow along. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all three things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile him to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its timelessness. Thank you for its eternal message. Today, as we contemplate this and other passages from your scriptures, may the meditations of my mouth and the thoughts of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight our rock and our redeemer. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to play a little guessing game with you this morning. Uh, Those of you who have access to the Internet and are familiar with Google know what a powerful search engine that is. Out of curiosity this last week, on Wednesday, I think it was, I went to Google and typed in the word peace just to see how many hits, how many other websites, articles, pages, and so on. 
I would find there. How many do you think that was? I had a guess maybe 50 million, 75 million. I just had no idea what to expect. Well, it came back in 1.8 seconds, or however long it takes Google to calculate these things, 588 million different hits, websites, articles, etc., related to peace. What surprised me most about this was that this was only 100 million less than anything on Google related to sex. I figured sex would really outpace peace, but it doesn't. It turns out that at least according to a source like Google, people are hungry for peace. And as I looked through this list and examined some of the, uh, some of the hits and went to some of these websites, I was really interested to see the various kinds of uh, programs, articles, projects dedicated to peace. And here are some of them. You could go on there and find hits, links to the Peace Corps, Peace Prizes, Peace Colleges, Peace Endowments, Peace Gardens, Peace Institutes, even Peace Protests. Women for Peace, Jews for Peace, Veterans for Peace, Buddhists for Peace, Religions for Peace, Musicals for Peace, Children for Peace. There's even a museum for peace in Chicago, Illinois, I think. The list goes on and on. 588 million different possibilities to learn about peace. An interesting thing, I think, if you examine these as I examine these, we'd find just an amazing assortment of formulas, of ideas, of how we can go about finding peace. And some of them are really good. I've read some of the books, read some of the articles, and they're really useful. They give us a lot of good ideas. All of them, ultimately, however, are probably based on human effort. And as we know, human effort doesn't always succeed when it comes to bringing lasting peace. And the reason they don't is because our human efforts typically fail to address the human heart. As a friend of mine said to me recently, the heart is the darkest continent. And it's really true. We understand less about the heart than we do about the geography of our world unless we look into the scriptures, unless we look to God's word to begin to get a sense of what the heart is all about and how it relates to the peace that we do or don't have between ourselves and other people. And this reminded me of the indictment in Jeremiah chapter 6, where Jeremiah wrote, They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Fortunately, we don't need to sort through 588 million different sites to find out about peace. God's graciously provided us in his word everything we need to know. And this passage from Colossians today is especially helpful. It's more robust, more promising, more exhilarating in the way of a formula than anything we can find in any of these links that are available on Google. I'd like to summarize all of this in five principles that I was able to draw out of the Colossians passage and share them with you because I think they begin to form a foundation for how we might think about peace, how we might begin to pursue peace, not only with other people uh, that are in the pew next to us, but with Christians around the world, with our neighbors who don't yet know Christ. Five key principles, and I'm just going to spend a little time going over them this morning. The first is that peace is a priority to God. Peace is a priority to God. And to understand this, all we need to do is consider who he sent. 
to make peace with us, God could have sent angels. He could have sent armies to impose peace. He could have sent delegations of wise men and women to teach us about peace and to lead us into peace. He didn't do any of that, did he? In fact, he places such a high priority on peace that he sent his one and only son, his most exalted ambassador, the representative who has better credentials than any other representative he could have sent. I want to just read through that Colossians passage again, because sometimes, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I read through Scripture, I sort of gloss over things, especially if they're familiar to me, as this passage happens to be. Let me go back over it again, because I think it's really helpful to contemplate anew who this passage says Jesus is. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things, all things were created by him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. This is who Jesus is. This is who God sent to make peace. And interestingly, this wasn't a last-minute thought, a last-minute assignment on God's part. He says in 1 Peter chapter 1 that he planned for this before the creation of the world, that Jesus was planned to be sent before all of this came into existence, even before our conflicts came into existence. God, therefore, seems to have made peace one of his higher priorities, and he calls us to do the same. He doesn't want us to treat our estrangements from other people, our conflict as people, as trivial matters, quite the opposite. He wants us to make more than token efforts to seek peace with others. And he teaches us never to delay if we have a conflict with someone to act on it, not simply to allow it to fester and cause problems long-term in our relationship. I don't know if you've ever really read or considered the verses in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, but let me read these because they do give us a sense of the priority, the urgency that he attaches to this whole topic of reconciliation. Jesus speaking, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. So God indicates in his word in a number of places the priority that he puts on peace and peacemaking. He sent Jesus, his son, his most exalted ambassador. And he tells us not to approach him in worship in these passages from Matthew, unless we've made every reasonable effort to seek peace and reconciliation with other people. So by his words, by his example, by his command, he tells us that reconciliation, that peace should be a priority for us. We should do no less. So the first key principle is making peace a priority in our lives. The second is that real peace is expensive. Real peace is expensive. Consider the price that had to be paid in order for us to have peace with God. 
Jesus had to leave the glory of heaven, had to descend to earth. He lived, grew up, walked countless miles over deserts, dusty roads, submitted to mocking, to beating, to torture, and shed his blood on the cross, all for us. An amazing price to have paid. As God's son, Jesus' life was incredibly precious. I don't know how we begin to put a price on that, begin to figure how much in dollars and cents that might actually be worth. The question that, that has astounded me as I thought about this is why would God pay such a high price? Why would he do that for me? He tells us over and over again in Scripture, as astonishing as it is and as hard as it is to believe sometimes, that what moved him to do all this was love. Believe it or not, he loves us. Remember what John said in, in words that are very familiar to us. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And First John picks this up, the Apostle again picks this up in his first letter, repeats and expands on this. He writes, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. You hear that? Since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That's the response that God is looking for in us. That's what he expects us to do. And if that love is flowing through our lives, if we're willing and eager to pay whatever price is necessary in order to be reconciled to other people, in order to work out whatever difficulties we might have, we can experience God's love in new and amazing ways. One of the things I like to do from time to time is ask myself, just how much am I willing to play, pay? I'm, I'm involved in a fair number of personal conflicts myself, with my family, with friends, with co-workers. And I am constantly challenged to ask, am I as passionate about peace as Jesus is? He paid the ultimate price for me. Am I willing to do anything like that? I find it really hard, but I also find it very helpful personally to look at a few scriptures, a few passages that begin to give me some ideas, some practical ways to apply this in my life. And I want to share just a few with you this morning. 1 Peter 5 says, Humble yourself under God's mighty hand. And this is a real key to peacemaking, i found. The question is, will I humble myself? Will I stop trying to prove my own righteousness? Will I do away with whatever I've been doing over the course of my life in the way of tactics to try to resolve conflicts and instead do what God says I should be doing, willing to obey his word as difficult or as uncomfortable as that might be for me? Matthew chapter 7 Jesus says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, I do this all the time. I dwell constantly on what other people have done to me, and I'm really good at overlooking what I've done, my part in the conflict. Jesus is pretty clear here. When I do that, when I fail to take the log out of my own eye first, I'm what? I'm a hypocrite. If I want to follow the Lord, 
what I need to do is admit that someone else may have something that I need to confess to them. I need to take responsibility first for what's going on in my life, be willing to confess that, to make that right, to seek forgiveness, in order that I then might be in a position to help someone else with whatever's going on in their life. Another passage that's really helpful, Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Paul writes, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And what this means is, am I willing to admit that someone else may understand a conflict even better than me, that there's another perspective on this that would be useful for me to listen to? Am I willing to put as much effort into understanding what's important to them, what they need to get out of it, what will serve their interests, as well as what will serve my interests and what's important to me? A hard question, a difficult question, but if I'm going to serve the Lord in the midst of the disputes that I have, it's something that I need to begin to take seriously. Ephesians 4:32, Paul writes, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. So what about the person who's wronged me? What about the person who has offended me, betrayed my trust, failed to keep a commitment to me? damaged me, damaged my property, damaged my reputation. What am I going to do about that? Will I allow myself to simply wallow in bitterness, give up in self-pity, as enjoyable as that can be sometimes? Will I get rid of this desire to make the other person pay for the wrong he or she has done to me? If I understand the gospel, there are great implications for how I ought to respond to those kinds of questions. Jesus paid a great price to secure our forgiveness from God. His love overflows to us. It continues to overflow to us. And he invites us, he commands us, to have that same love overflow to other people, particularly those with whom we're in conflict. Real peace is expensive, and we should expect it to be call upon all the resources that we have in order to truly follow him. Well, I don't know about you, but I find that really tough to do. I find in myself that I simply don't have the resources, I don't have the energy, I don't have the gifts sometimes to be able to make peace in that way. I find it really hard. And so what we need is an ally, and that's the third point. If we're going to pursue real peace, we're not going to be able to do it on our own strength. We're going to need an ally. We need someone who can come be alongside us, who can help us, who can empower us in ways that we could never do on our own. Fortunately, there is one who is willing to do that. Listen to Colossians, the last two verses that we read this morning, verses 19 and 20. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. In Jesus, we have a true ally, someone who can empower us, someone who can enable us to do things that we could never do on our own power. He's eager, in fact, he tells us, to come alongside each of us, to have us begin to depend on him. As Philippians 2 promises us, it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. 
God who works in us to will and to act according to his good purpose. That's the kind of support we have. That's the kind of ally that we have. Someone who is eager to help us. Someone who is eager to come beside us, to work with us, to do his will, to bring real peace, real reconciliation to the relationships of ours that are in trouble. We, in turn, however, have to be sure to seek his counsel. We can't do it on our own. We have to bank on his resources, and we have to trust that he is always with us. We move forward, trusting that he will show us the way to work out whatever difficulties we might be in the middle of. Well, the fourth principle that I take out of this Colossians passage Real peace is found only at the cross. Real peace is found only at the cross. We Americans spend millions of hours and probably billions of dollars each year trying to find some measure of peace. We do it through buying books. We do it through reading. We attend seminars. I'm a lawyer. Um, I've spent a lot of time working with people in legal disputes. I know we spend a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of effort trying to resolve issues through the court system. All of this is important. There are certainly times it's really valid. But if we fail to understand that true peace comes at the cross, we're going to miss the mark. We're not going to get where we really want to go. Real peace is only found through Jesus. And this is what we read in Colossians 1.20, that Jesus shed his blood to pay for our sins, to purchase our peace, and to reconcile us to God. This gift is found nowhere else in the world, is it? It's only found at the cross. And Acts proclaims, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And it's at the cross that the gospel of Christ is truly revealed. Jesus has freed us from the penalty of sin and given us the ability to break free from sinful attitudes and habits that foster conflict and prevent reconciliation. I've worked as a mediator in hundreds of cases over the course of my career, all kinds of issues. You name it, I've probably been involved in it in one way or another. And in my experience, and I see this both in my own life, I see it also in the lives of the people with whom I work, when people truly begin to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we understand the depth of our sinfulness and the gratitude that we have because God has forgiven us of that, it puts a whole other light on the conflict. It it puts a different perspective on what the other person has done to us. It transforms the way we think. It transforms the way that we act. It transforms our heart. It brings real change, lasting change. A friend of mine wrote recently, and I just want to share it with you because I thought they were really profound words. Take hold of the liberating promises of the gospel. Trust that Jesus has forgiven our sins and confess them freely. Believe that he's using the pressures of conflict to help us grow. Can you believe that? In a conflict, if we're looking to the Lord, we can actually grow. We can become more like Christ, more long-suffering, more loving, more patient, more kind considerate of others. All of the fruits of the Spirit can happen if we use our conflicts productively. He's using the pressures of conflict to help us grow and cooperate with him. Depend on his assurance that he always is watching over us. Stop fearing what others might do to us. 
Know that he delights to display his sanctifying power in our lives and attempt to do things we could never accomplish in our own strength. Does that begin to put a different twist on conflict? Begin to to frame it in a way that makes it something that maybe is not so fearful, not so uh, overwhelming, difficult, yes, uncomfortable, yes. None of us, myself included, likes to be involved in those kinds of situations. But we can redeem them with God's help so that he is glorified in our lives and we grow in the image of his own son. Well, point five from Colossians. Real peace has eternal consequences. When Jesus died on the cross, he opened the door for us to be fully reconciled to God and to enter into heaven. Jesus promised in John 6, I tell you the truth, he who believes has everlasting life. You and I, who are believers, have everlasting life. Inherent in this gift, he also tells us that we have an opportunity and a responsibility to share this gift with others. And there's a wonderful passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm sure you're familiar with it. just want to read it briefly because it helps frame again a way that we can think about conflict that's really useful. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. You ever thought of that? You are an ambassador. You're an ambassador of Christ. God is making his appeal through you, through me, through each of us, to be reconciled to him. And he's given us this ministry of reconciliation that we might not only go out in his name to reconcile people to God, but to reconcile people to each other. He wouldn't be satisfied, I don't think, to reconcile us to himself and allow us to continue in an unreconciled relationship. To simply allow whatever disagreement, whatever dispute you might have, to be a break in the unity that we have within the Christian church. If you receive this peace, this reconciliation, and eternal life through Jesus, he calls us to share, therefore, this gift with others. Words alone, as we all know, are good. Many of us have come to the Lord through the words of other people, but even more powerful than that are the actions, a life lived, according to the gospel, a life lived out with acts and words and deeds that truly proclaim this peace of Christ. In fact, John, in chapter 13, says this, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's what we're called to do. We're called to love one another. We're called to be concerned about one another. We're called to meet the interests of one another. We're called to make peace such a high priority that it would even take a higher priority in our lives than worship, if necessary. That's what reconciliation is all about. That's what peacemaking is all about. 
Anyone can love those who love them, right? We all know that. Luke says as much. If we have enemies, what are we supposed to do? If they're hungry, we feed them. If they're thirsty, we give them something to drink, right? That's the kind of action that shows the world that we truly are representatives of the living God and that his spirit and his love dwell within us. The world is hungry for peace. We all are hungry for peace in our own lives and the relationships that we have. Much of what's out there is useful. It's worth taking a look at. But we need to keep in mind that only the genuine peace, real peace, is only found through Christ. It's only found at the cross. And it's only as we bring that dynamic into our own lives and into our relationships that we can truly begin to experience the real peace that Jesus has in mind. Every time you experience a conflict or I experience a conflict, therefore, we have the opportunity to show others how to find real peace. And that's the final blank that you have to fill in on your outline. We have an opportunity to show others how to find real peace by modeling the peace that we see in Jesus, by counting on his help within us to do things that we don't think are possible. And I pray that God grants all of us the peace and grace to do so in a way as we work on our relationships, as we go to others and try to resolve the conflicts in which we find ourselves, to do so in a way that point clearly to the Lord, who among other titles is known to us as the Prince of Peace. Let me close this in prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you have um, not left us alone. You dwell in us. Your word richly informs us who you are and how we can serve you and serve other people. And I pray for all of us. All of us have conflicts in our lives, big, small, and if not today, then soon. Help us to serve you, to build your church, to truly evangelize by not only our words, but by our actions, that you would be honored and you would be glorified. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.